Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, Lundown listeners. I'm Poppy Waring, part of the Behind the Scenes podcast team. Before we kick off the show, I have a very exciting announcement. The award-winning Lundown is recording live on stage at the extraordinary 6A-designed South London Gallery on Saturday the 13th of November. Host Merlin Fulcher will be joined by special guests, the architect Nana Biyama Afosu, director of Studio Nyali, and the Guardian journalist Hetty O'Brien. These special live events are super fun to make and we would love to see some of you, our dedicated listeners, there. So please join us. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash events to book tickets. Thank you. Now on with the show. A £1.8 billion budget boost for new homes on post-industrial brownfields. Greenwash accusations over a rash of vertically planted living walls sprouting over London Outrage after MPs greenlight dumping sewage in London's rivers. Hotel plans for Grade 1 listed Customs House unanimously voted down. And what the COP26 climate summit could mean for London's built environment. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist. And I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Will Ng. Will is reporter at the Architects Journal, the AJ. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Our top story this week is the Chancellor's highly anticipated post-pandemic budget. It's been covered extensively by the AJ, City AM, BBC News and across the London and national media. Addressing the House of Commons, Rishi Sunak announced a cash injection of £1.8 billion to be spent on building 160,000 new, quote, greener homes on brownfield sites across the country. It means focusing house building on often inner city plots. Typically, these are challenging ex-industrial bits of land needing lots of cash to make them fit for living on. It will cover an area equivalent to 2,000 football pitches, and works out as a subsidy of about £11,250 per home. As well as new dwellings, new transport links, schools and community spaces are also set to be developed, the Treasury has announced. £300 million of grant funding will meanwhile also be handed to metro mayors and councils to unlock even smaller brownfield sites for housing. 
Elsewhere, £9 million will be spent on, quote, levelling up urban parks and green spaces with the intention of transforming 100 neglected spaces into miniature parks, creating small pockets of greenery, roughly the size of a tennis court, in highly built-up areas of our cities. In his speech, Sunak also confirmed that £65 million will be set aside for a digital transformation of the planning system through development of new software. All of these funds are said to be focused as part of the government's effort to meet the UK's net zero target by 2050. Sunak said, quote, We are investing in better quality, safer, greener and more affordable homes to create thriving places where people want to live. He continued, Transforming our unloved and neglected urban spaces will help protect our cherished countryside and green spaces while improving the physical and mental health of our communities. Nigel Wilson, he's the chief executive of Legal and General, said the investment was the, quote, right direction to travel, but was, quote, not enough scale right now. He warned people living in smaller cities and towns were being left behind due to not enough homes being constructed. He went on to say that, quote, you shouldn't have to be rich to be green. It's very difficult for poorer people to get on the green housing ladder. So, Will, what's this budget all about? Anyone listening will be under no illusions of the enormous scale of investment needed to meet our very real housing and environmental needs. Does the Chancellor's vision go far enough? Rishi Sunak said his budget is about levelling up, right? Um, So this is a remarkably underdefined term, given that there is now literally a whole ministry called the Leveling Up Ministry. Uh, But my understanding is that it's a political and economic project to invest into towns and small cities around the country, uh, especially outside of the affluent south of England, to create more homes, more jobs and more prosperity uh, in areas which might feel left behind. I personally am pleased that the £1.8 billion is being spent on homes on on brownfield land. Uh, It will help create more jobs in existing towns, not only construction jobs, but you know, also encouraging people to reopen vacant shops as the population grows in these towns. So it's a good way to kind of regenerate towns and hopefully reuse some of the existing buildings there, rather than seeing young families move outside of towns to greenfield development. So development of brownfield land will also, I personally am hoping, uh, mean a greater need for architects because there'll be kind of infill sites which require you know, thoughtful and bespoke solutions rather than having kind of cookie cutter homes being churned out on fields. I guess I'd like to add that I hope the money is not used to support some of the kind of large scale brownfield developments we've had in uh, kind of central London, such as Nine Elms and probably Canada Water, where you end up getting huge towers with flats owned by overseas investors. But On the whole, I think it's good news. Will it solve the housing crisis? Uh, No, definitely it won't. You know, a lot more money would be required for the housing crisis to actually be solved and several years of building homes, including many, many more affordable homes. Uh, For this to happen, as we talked about before, the Conservative Party would have to reckon with wealthy landowners, which help fund it, and who profit from the housing crisis, as well as their elderly middle-class voters, a lot of whom have their wealth stored in property, um, and, you know, and therefore would lose out from the kind of falling house prices. So this policy is not designed to solve the housing crisis. It's about investing in towns, while also ensuring more people in marginal seats can get onto the property ladder. 
And what's interesting about this is that until very recently, the government was pursuing a bold and contentious planning reform agenda. And it would have seen, with something we've covered a lot on the show before, it would have seen the right to build effectively deregulated in certain areas. And also housing targets being rolled out across the entire country, way beyond just these post-industrial heartlands, the kind of sites that we've been discussing. Um, But now we've got a new housing minister, Michael Gove. Uh, Those reforms are reportedly scrapped. Uh, leaving seemingly everything up in the air. Now, we've got this budget focusing on brownfield. So what does this say about the potential future direction of housing policy? Now we've got a new housing minister. Well, the proposed planning reforms were deeply unpopular with Conservative MPs. You know, it was Conservative MPs and their NIMBY constituents that basically jettisoned it. The, The planning white paper of August 2020 was actually quite vague about, you know, what this would look like. But the fear among Conservative MPs uh, was that councils would be forced to kind of circle in red pen swathes of fields in their jurisdiction, whereupon developers would have a kind of de facto outline permission and could just rock up and automatically have a right to erect new homes. And this would have proved obviously massively controversial uh, with the kinds of, you know, NIMBYs and middle class homeowners uh, that live in Tory constituencies. And it probably would have also resulted in some pretty poor greenfields development. So, you know, this new approach outlined today in the budget is quite different. And it probably will also do more to level up and help areas that need more investment. In terms of the kind of planning reforms, we await to see what that will look like. It's not kind of clear whether this idea of beauty will come back. This... You know, beauty, which was basically, as far as I can tell, a euphemism for classical or vernacular architecture, is something which Gove has talked about before. And the Office for Place, which is headed by Nicholas Boyce Smith of Create Streets, does now exist to help councils make design codes. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what design codes are actually going to be used for. So two big things in the budget today. I'm not talking about the two million pounds for a Beatles visitor attraction or the the three pence off a pint of beer in a pub. Um, What what I want to focus on is the 65 million pounds which has been earmarked for a new digitised planning system. Uh, And also, something that was really, really interesting, um, a 4% tax which is going to be levied on developers who earn more than 20 million pounds a year to help pay for the cladding crisis this government's four billion pound fund that it's put together to pay for that. Well, what do you think about these two policies? They're quite interesting ones. Well, I am enormously like overjoyed that planning digitization is going to get some money. I mean, this really is a policy that will save me several hours a week. At the moment, you know, planning systems, planning portals are absolute hell to navigate. Um, every council has a different, you know, planning system. That they're very kind of clunky and often don't work. It just could not be worse than it currently is. So I think it's long overdue. And, and what about this tax on the developers? I mean, is that quite bold and is that going to ruffle feathers? Or is that actually a, quite, a kind of polite way of solving this problem, which is an epic failure by the industry? I think it's a blunt instrument, right? So it's obviously not fair that some developers will have just avoided putting flammable cladding on buildings in the first place. And others will have really shamelessly shirked responsibility and and sought to blame others all the way down. But I have to say, I think it's a good policy. You know, as a sector, developers have been the biggest winners from the production of unsafe homes over the last 20 years. And 
I know they've had to invest into creating these homes, but they've invested with relatively little risk when you think about the housing market. So fair enough. Our next story is all about so-called green walls. These are vertically planted living gardens and what they really mean for our cities and the environment. Our guest, Will, reported extensively on the issue in the AJ. Over the past 20 years, London and many other cities across the world have seen a blossoming of greenery carpeting the walls of skyscrapers, luxury hotels, offices, fancy shops and trendy bars. This craze is showing no signs of slowing, with the new headquarters for tech giant Google at King's Cross, designed by Heatherwick Studio and Danish stars Big, promising a grass-laden plateau, two tree walkways, a garden and even a headland on its roof. The latest City of London skyscraper by the acclaimed architect Eric Parry will have a 26-storey green wall, while the KPF-designed 70 Grace Church Street will have planted terraces on more than 25 storeys. Not to be outdone, an extension to Blackfriars Crown Court by Studio Re will also be topped with a 100-tree forest. Hounded by some as a tokenistic gesture, meant to impress clients, uh, and heralded by others as a much-needed step in the right direction, the true benefits of living walls are very much up for debate. A recent report by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds and Worldwide Fund for Nature referenced plants' powerful capacity for lowering temperatures, noise absorption, protecting against flooding, air filtration, and biodiversity boosting potential. All of these they cited as reasons why green walls and roofs play a, quote, vital role in our urban environment. Climate experts say plants are key to combating the effects of climate change and making cities more livable. The UK Green Building Council has called for all new buildings and infrastructure to have, quote, nature-based solutions by 2030 to ensure they remain hospitable as cities heat up over the coming decades. However, some argue that these leafy exteriors are designed to distract our attention from the real issue. For example, it takes 17 trees 10 years to absorb one tonne of CO2. That is somewhat insignificant when compared to the tens of thousands of tonnes of CO2 produced in construction and the running of big commercial buildings. On top of this, the success of living walls across the city has been mixed. Dotted across the capital are various decaying walls draped in rotting roots and bare soil. The reason for this, according to Steve McIntyre, he's an urban environment consultant at the living wall specialist ANS Global, is lack of maintenance and poor choice of plants. So will some people dismiss these walls as greenwashing, tokenistic gestures, while others sing their praises as the start of a greener future for cities? What sign of the line do you stand on in this debate, following all the research and reporting you've done? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm somewhere in the middle, but I'm actually leaning towards seeing plants and buildings as the start of a greener future. Plants do do an amazing array of really useful things that, that we badly need in cities. They clean the air, they absorb carbon, all right, not much of it, but they, but they do. Uh, they clean rainwater and take toxins out of rainwater, they cool cities, as you, as you mentioned. Um, they fight noise pollution. They increase biodiversity. And they also are nice to be around. You know, they make humans happier. So we need many, many more plants in our cities. I think um, horizontal planting is better. So either rooftop gardens or terrestrial landscapes. That is better for sustainable drainage uh, and preventing flooding. It's also just much easier to grow plants on a horizontal surface. That's how plants like to be grown. Um, however, 
I think there's a real case for green walls for the simple reason that we do not have much horizontal space in our cities. Um, but, you know, walls are spaces we have loads of. We have loads of spare walls or kind of planes that we are not otherwise, vertical planes that we are not otherwise using. So, so they are good. You know, you can build more densely and put a green wall on rather than kind of just terrestrial landscaping around a building. Having said that, I am definitely concerned that some green wall projects are greenwash. The most ex obvious example, in my opinion, is probably the 26-storey green wall, which you mentioned, which will adorn the side of Eric Parry's 50 Fenchurch skyscraper. Now, that skyscraper, which received planning permission last year, so I think is going to be built um, once the 10-storey building already on site is demolished, is clearly going to have an enormous amount of embodied carbon in the steel and concrete which goes into it. Given that it's mostly glazed um, beside the green wall, it could well require a large amount of heating in winter and a large amount of cooling in summer. And the green wall itself is likely to use lots of fresh water because it's quite a small site, so you're probably not going to be able to collect all the rainwater you need to feed this enormous 26-storey green wall. And then, you know, by the way, pumping all this water around 26 storeys is going to use quite a lot of energy. So, you know, why is it there? It's, it's there as a feature for the financial companies, which will probably occupy the building. And incidentally, it makes the entire project look much, much greener, literally, than it really is. A couple of weeks ago, we launched the Flat White campaign to help keep the Lundown as well as Open City's various other public programmes free and accessible for those who couldn't afford them otherwise. We asked you, the Lundown listeners, to donate the equivalent of the price of one Flat White coffee a month. And I would like to personally thank the following six people. Giovanna Kalehin, Joseph Frame, Marta Ferreira, Reluca Turku, Charlie Couve and Angie Oakwood. Thank you for helping us. And if you're able to support us, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white and help us continue to make this show, the festival and our many other programmes free, open and accessible. And we promise to thank everyone who chips in on the following week's show. Our next story is all to do with the outrage which erupted after the government successfully called on MPs to block legislation which would have prevented companies from continuing to dump raw sewage into rivers and seas. The controversial move, which would have saved water companies and the government billions of pounds, was reported by The Independent, My London and The Evening Standard and also provoked a torrent of social media posts criticising the government. It's now even resulted in a partial U-turn by the government, meaning water companies will be required by law to show a reduction in sewage overspills over the next five years. So how did this come about? The House of Lords amendment to the Environment Bill, which would have effectively banned water companies pumping sewage into rivers, was defeated after the government called on its MPs to vote it down. In 2020, raw sewage was discharged more than 400,000 times for a total of more than 3.1 million hours, according to the Environment Agency. The Rivers Trust has also published figures that reveal that all of England's rivers fail to pass cleanliness tests, with 53% of them failing at least partly because of water companies releasing sewage into them. The Environment Minister, George Eustace, instructed MPs to vote against the amendment, 
However, 22 Conservative MPs joined Labour, the Liberal Democrats and other parties in opposition to the government. A torrent of criticism erupted online, and as a result, the government agreed a new policy which will force companies to reduce the impact of sewage discharges from storm overflows. Meanwhile, this week also saw the introduction of the ultra-low emission zone, it's called the ULES, which now encompasses the entire area within London's busy north and south circular roads. Brought in by London Mayor Sadiq Khan to reduce pollution and congestion in the city centre, the ULES will mean drivers of older diesel and petrol cars without a Euro 4 rating will have to pay a £12.50 daily charge. However, lorries, vans and specialist heavy vehicles, uh, as well as buses, minibuses and coaches are all exempt. So, Will, what's going on here? Um, you know, why does the government seem to be simultaneously desperate to please big business at the expense of the natural environment, uh, but also kind of terrified of public opinion backlash uh, on its stance towards the natural environment. I think this problem dates back to the privatisation of the water companies, right? All the way back into 1989. Um, what happened then is that the publicly owned regional water companies were sold off to investors. So today, the companies which provide our water and deal with our wastewater and sewage are owned by, you know, sovereign wealth funds and asset managers. Um, you know, Thames Water, that's my water provider, uh, owned by a Canadian pensions group, Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund, Kuwaiti Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, and so on. So they don't necessarily have a strong sense of the, the public good. They're trying to return a dividend. Um, these companies have monopolies in as much as you can't choose to have another water company provide your water. But the amount they're allowed to charge consumers you know, is determined by Ofwat, which is the water regulator. And under the privatisation, the idea is that these companies would make long-term investments in upgrading the water and sewage infrastructure, which they use. But basically, the water companies did not make these long-term investments. A huge amount of wealth was extracted out of them by financial companies. And Ofwat and the environmental agency hasn't done much about it. So now water companies are saying, well, you know, they can't be responsible for the size and the scale of the infrastructure work required. And they're saying that they cannot afford to do it under the current rates which they're allowed to charge consumers. So I think government is in a bind. It doesn't really want to spend money on the infrastructure of sewage itself at a time when public spending has gone through the roof with coronavirus. Um, it, would, it would rather nudge the water companies to change. And if the government legislated for a sort of total stop of pollution, that would probably make the water companies go bust and could mean that the government is kind of liable to pay for some of the costs. So I think that's what's going on. So if we look at the, the ULES, which also came in this week, um, that too's received some criticism. It's been championed by the London mayor, but at the same time, he's pushing for the Silvertown Tunnel, which carries huge environmental costs with it. Uh, ULES only covers the more expensive and affluent parts of London. Many large and heavily polluting vehicles are exempt. Uh, the World Health Organization has just released new recommended levels for air quality, and 100% of Londoners live in areas that breach these recommended limits. Um, is this really the radical transport overhaul we desperately need, and a better example of policy making than the new Environment Bill, um, or have we still got a long way to go here in London? I think we definitely have a long way to go, but I might stick up for the Mayor of London a little bit, actually. Um, I think the ultra-low emission zone is fairly radical, an enormous amount of everyday Londoners are angry with him over this, you know, and many of whom 
will have voted for him and feel kind of genuinely betrayed by this policy. I mean, just quickly, though, as a cyclist, I mean, how many times have you been stuck behind a big van or a big bus belching out some really intense fumes, um, which apparently they're all exempt from this thing? Uh, and then also, how many times you've been cycling in outer London and stuck behind some weird vehicle that is, like, totally toxic? Um, sure, it doesn't really seem like there's much power over those. Yeah, I, I guess the reason why he's exempted vans and large lorries and stuff is because they are businesses in London whereas the first people that you're absolutely trying to stop using cars are people that are using cars to get to the shops when they could walk or cycle who, who genuinely don't really need it. Our next story was reported by the AJ and it's all to do with City of London's planning officers slamming proposals by the architects Squire and Partners to revamp Customs House. Squire's submitted plans to convert and extend the landmark Grade 1 listed Thamesfront building into a hotel but were met with an unusually damning planning report which set out 12 reasons for rejecting the proposed project. As a result, the City of London's planning committee has now unanimously rejected the proposal. However, having sat on the application for too long, the City has already lost its power to determine the application, and so a final decision will have to be taken by the planning inspectorate. The vast neoclassical building, uh, easily recognisable for its blue waterfront railings, was completed in 1817 and is still used as an office for HM Revenue and Customs, but is earmarked to become a 200-room hotel with rooftop bar, ground floor museum, um, all under Squire and Partners' plans. The practice applied to refurbish the building and add two two-storey extensions above its western and eastern blocks. The works, which would have included internal demolition, would also see the creation of meeting rooms, spa facilities and a revamped public realm. City of London planning officers said the change of use, quote, would not be acceptable, adding that the refurbishment failed to conserve the listed building. They also argued that while the proposed museum would be an asset, it would occupy less than 2% of the building's total floor area and would be divorced from the river and quayside and from other historical areas of the building. Squire's partner, Michael Squire, expressed his surprise at the report, saying that the reasons for refusal, quote, refer almost entirely to issues which have been negotiated for a period of over four years. So, Will, what's this all about? Customs House is one of London's grandest state-owned buildings. Um, I think it's previously only been open to the public during Open House Festival. Is this planning setback for Customs House, perhaps about the government not trying hard enough to find a suitable future use? I think the whole row is about the extent to which the public will be able to view this kind of splendid new building. And I actually take Michael Squire's word for it when he says that almost everything that um, the planners kind of moaned about had been agreed upon but that the one outstanding issue which was not agreed upon is whether the developer or the operator of the new hotel would have the right to close the nice new riverside public realm every now and then for private functions but I, I am pleased that City of London has taken a stand on the public realm because it's south-facing and it's, it's one of the few places in the city of London that's not overshadowed, overshadowed by kind of towers. Our final story is all to do with the UN Climate Summit, COP26, starting imminently in Glasgow. It's something that's been covered across the media extensively. 
world leaders, possibly excluding some notable faces including Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, will gather for the most important climate summit since the 2015 Paris Agreement. Climate activist Greta Thunberg has already called out leaders for their quote, blah, blah, blah talk uh, and no action towards the crisis. And even Boris Johnson, the host of this summit, has already dampened expectations by admitting that chances of success are quote, touch and go. Scientists who have repeatedly stressed the critical importance of massive carbon reduction now warn that unless action is taken immediately, we risk catastrophic consequences. Among the numerous topics of debate will of course be the built environment, uh, but will the environmental impact of construction receive the attention it deserves? We know the sector currently accounts for nearly 40% of global emissions. Key parts of the summit will include a wood for good conference making the case for a sustainable future clad in wood, the Building to COP26 Forum, which aims to decarbonise the industry by encouraging commitment to green and net zero buildings, and a virtual UK Green Building Council pavilion, consisting of 17 exemplary green buildings from around the world. But when it all kicks off, the real attention will be on the political leaders, their speeches, and most importantly, whether a meaningful, legally binding agreement is achieved. So Will, what's this all about? What should listeners expect from COP26? And what is the likelihood that something really significant might come out of it to reduce the construction industry's contribution to global emissions? I would say the likelihood of something significant coming out is pretty low. Um, The kind of backdrop of this particular COP conference is countries not having done enough to to meet the goals kind of agreed in the Paris Agreement. You know, promised money to developing nations has not been delivered. Governments have moved too slowly and in some cases haven't even kind of enshrined these goals in law. I think in terms of construction, the other factor is that it's it's not properly on kind of leaders' radar yet as, as a big thing that we need to tackle in terms of mitigating climate change. So uh, the government has made sort of baby steps recently towards promoting timber and hinting that embodied carbon could be regulated in the future. And I think some politicians and newspapers are beginning to wake up to the, the role of the built environment all this. Um, I think Insulate Britain is obviously banging this drum. Uh, at the AJ, we're trying to promote reuse of buildings. But uh, nevertheless, you know, I know there is a huge construction industry presence at COP, particularly kind of trade bodies and lots of architects. So I hope we are going to hear more about it. I hope we're going to hear more about Timber in particular, which, which as I say, the government has kind of just said they are going to promote, albeit on a low, low rise scale. And finally, as we're talking about green construction methods being taken seriously, what to make of this clip? What do you do for a living, well, Cameron? I'm a carpenter. A carpenter, right. So how safe is that for the climate? Well, I work with timber, which is a much more sustainable material rather than concrete. I also but you work with trees that have been cut down then, don't you? It's a sustainable building practice. How is it sustainable if you're killing trees? Because it's regenerative, you can grow trees. Right. Well, you can you can grow all sorts of things, can't you? Well, you can't grow concrete. You can. That was a clip of Mike Graham, a regular talk radio presenter, attempting to interview Cameron Ford, a carpenter and spokesperson for the protest group Insulate Britain, something we've discussed before on London. Uh, In the clip, widely dubbed a car crash, 
Graham brazenly and falsely claims it is possible to grow concrete, but it is met with baffled silence from his guest. The video went viral online yesterday after talk radio shared it on Twitter, seemingly in an ill-judged attempt to humiliate, insulate Britain campaigners. Their efforts quickly backfired, with numerous pundits mocking Graham for spuriously claiming concrete could be grown like trees, and congratulating Ford for his calm and matter-of-fact interview technique. So, Will, the interview's been watched some 7.8 million times on Twitter alone. Um, is this just a lone pundit who doesn't understand basic material science? Or does the clip tell us something about the failings of the wider media when it comes to talking about architecture and construction issues? Yeah, I think it's up to 9 million views now, Merlin. And to be honest, I'm probably about half a million of those. Um, but actually, the more I watched it, the more I realised that, that the insidious part is, is when he says, how can, you know, how on earth can killing trees be sustainable? And he went on um, Jeremy Kyle's talk radio show later in the day to kind of double down on this. And, you know, he said Cameron is making trees out of making, sorry, um, furniture out of trees which would take 100 years to replace which which is just nonsense like you, you know you make furniture and buildings out of trees that take 20 years to replace so I find the level of disinformation um, quite hard to deal with actually and that's you know we're sort of laughing at the obvious disinformation um, but actually for a lot of people the idea that cutting down trees is bad will, will seem like a kind of common sense thing to agree with. Will, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you again on The Lundown, a true stalwart of the show. Uh, where can listeners find out more about your writing? Uh, they could follow me on Twitter. They could go to thearchitectsjournal.co.uk. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show again. Hope to have you on Lundown again soon in the future. Thanks, Merlin. You've been listening to The Lundown a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.